Welcome to Creation, Teaching Truth with Confidence, a biblical training program for teens and above. Now let's join Mike as he teaches about how to respond to biblical arguments used to support millions of years. Our subject is responding to biblical arguments used to support millions of years, and we're in lesson two of five on this subject. In lesson two, we will answer these challenges. Creation is a secondary doctrine. How could the first three days be literal days that the sun was not created until day four? And using modern science to interpret scripture. And our objectives for lesson two will include, one, state three reasons why creation is a primary doctrine. Two, respond to the statement, creation is not a salvation issue. Three, state how the first three days of creation could be literal days without the sun. And four, state two reasons why using modern science to interpret Scripture can lead to false biblical teaching. So our first challenge is, creation is a secondary doctrine. In other words, what our church leaders are doing and other Christians are taking a box and putting creation in a not important box and taking Jesus and the gospel and putting them in an important box and saying, let's take that unimportant box and let's not focus on it so much. So that is our first challenge. And we hear statements like this from our church leaders again. Again, creation is a secondary doctrine. Or creation is a divisive issue, therefore we should avoid it. Or how about creation is not a salvation issue. Now what does it mean when people make these statements? What they're really saying is this. They are unstudied in the issue or they don't want to cause controversy or division in the church. And many who make these claims are unable to give a good biblical reason for distinguishing between a major and minor doctrine. Now, in order to be consistent, if they're really going to say, we don't want to teach this subject because it's too controversial, it causes division, to be consistent, they need to stop teaching the gospel. Why? Because most people on this planet don't believe the gospel, and many of them see it as a very divisive issue. So if they're really going to be consistent, they need to stop teaching the gospel if they're not going to teach biblical creation because it also is very controversial. And also they need to remember something what the Bible teaches here in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And that verse states this, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete. Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, what is that verse telling us? That all Scripture is God-breathed and all of it, not just some of it, but all of it is good for teaching. Why? So we can equip the people in our congregation. But what happens when the church stops teaching parts of the Bible? Well, the answer is easy. The world will supply the answers. That is exactly what's happening in a lot of our churches today. Our youth are not being taught to defend their faith. And likewise, many church leaders are not preparing their congregation for the battlefield, allowing them to be influenced by false teachings. Wayne Grudem, professor of systematic theology, gives a pretty good explanation for the difference between a primary doctrine and a secondary doctrine when he states this. A major doctrine 
is one that has significant impact on our thinking about other doctrines or that has a significant impact on how we live the Christian life. A minor doctrine is one that has little impact on how we think about other doctrines and very little impact on how we live the Christian life. Now, let's put that in a picture format because I know some people like to see pictures and they don't go so much for the abstract. So let's put this in picture format. What is he really saying here? Well, he says this. A primary doctrine is one that has significant impact on the gospel or other doctrines. It will also have a direct impact on your biblical worldview. A secondary doctrine, on the other hand, is one that has little or no impact on the gospel, other doctrines, or a biblical worldview. So now, now we got our background. Let's go through eight reasons why church leaders must start teaching biblical creation to their congregations. And reason number one is this. Creation is God's first miracle. If we can't accept the plain reading of the first miracle, which is creation in six literal days, then why should we accept other miracles in the Bible? If we can't accept God's first miracle, then why should we accept any of his miracles? For example, maybe God really didn't part the Red Sea. Maybe it was some big winds that came across. Or maybe the tides. Or how about this? Maybe Jesus really didn't walk on water. Maybe the water was really shallow there, and he was just stepping on the rocks. Or how about maybe Jesus really didn't die on the cross? So if we don't believe God's first miracle, when do we start believing his miracles, and who's setting the rules now? Let's go to reason number two. Creation is the foundation for the gospel. Without the historical account in the first three chapters of Genesis, we don't have a full understanding of the gospel. In other words, creation is foundation for the very core of our Christian faith. In other words, the first three chapters of Genesis, we learn about why we need a Savior, why there is death and suffering, why Jesus had to conquer death, what we need to be saved from, the doctrine of sin, and the first promise of victory in a Savior, Genesis 3.15. In other words, creation is essential. It's an essential doctrine for understanding the gospel. Philip Johnson, executive director of Grace to You, makes this statement. Genesis lays a foundation that is absolutely necessary for understanding the gospel, and it serves as a model for how we should present gospel truth. Jeffrey Tompkins, who has a Ph.D. in genetics, makes this statement. It seemed obvious to me that if I accepted the New Testament message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, that I must also accept the biblical revelation regarding six-day creation. In other words, understanding the good news of the gospel depends on what happened in those first three chapters of Genesis. Now let's go to reason number three. Creation determines our view of the character of God and who He is. And we read in Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. Our understanding of this verse about how powerful God is, that He can do anything, starts in Genesis chapter 1. We find out a lot about who God is, and His character. For example, He is all-powerful, omnipotent. He is all-knowing, omniscient. He is a loving God. In Genesis 3.15, we see the first promise of a Savior. 
Only He can create out of nothing. He is the creator of all things. Therefore, He sets the standards for all aspects of life and salvation. He is a perfect God. His works are perfect. Genesis 1.31 and also Deuteronomy 32 verse 4. And He is the sovereign ruler over all His creation. The doctrine of sovereignty. If we don't understand and believe the first three chapters, how are we going to understand who our God is? Let's go to reason number four. The creation account establishes the doctrine of marriage. See, marriage is defined in Genesis as one man and one woman. Marriage is a key element of God's design for the world. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus referred to Genesis for the definition of marriage. If you don't believe the first three chapters, or you don't teach the first three chapters of Genesis, then what is your definition of marriage? Especially if you don't believe it. You don't have a definition of marriage. It becomes whatever you want it to be. Now let's go to reason number five. The creation account establishes the foundation for understanding many other doctrines and biblical truths. For example, again, God's first miracle, Genesis chapter 1. The doctrine of marriage, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of the Trinity, the necessity for the doctrine of grace, the foundation for a biblical worldview, why we die, why there is suffering, the sanctity of human life. We are created in the image and likeness of God. I think we're getting the idea this is a very important doctrine, the doctrine of creation. Now, the Grace to You staff, which is the Grace Community Church, John MacArthur, the pastor, makes this statement about creation. When considering what church to attend or college to send your children to, the doctrine of creation becomes very important because it's the foundation of a Christian worldview. In other words, what he's saying is creation is foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible. Albert Bayless, professor of Bible and theology, makes this statement. If we're going to learn about God through his activity, creation is the best place to start. It was and is the critical event for a person's worldview. Now, I hope at this point you really are getting the idea that creation is a very important doctrine. It's foundational for understanding what the Bible teaches. Equally important is that we teach it correctly, that God created everything in six literal days and stop teaching the way the world wants us to teach it, meaning millions and billions of years and some even adding evolution into there. Now let's go to reason number six. The creation account answers the question how evil was introduced into God's perfect creation. You see, it was introduced in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Eve and then when Adam and Eve disobeyed God. Now, how about reason number 7, the first three chapters? See, after Genesis chapter 3, the entire rest of the Bible is God's plan of redemption and restoration. In other words, the entire rest of the Bible had to take place because of what happened in the first three chapters of Genesis. This is extremely important, and we need to start teaching it in the church so our congregations and our youth especially can have answers for why they believe God's Word. It is foundational. Now, Terry Mortensen, Ph.D. in the History of Geology, puts it this way. The Bible is crystal clear. 
We must believe Genesis 1 through 11 as literal history because Jesus, the New Testament apostles, and the Old Testament prophets did, and because these opening chapters of Genesis are foundational to the rest of the Bible. Now, what is Dr. Mortensen telling us here? Let me go through a couple of examples what our New Testament authors believed here. First, creation and the fall are woven into the entire theology of the book of Romans. In other words, all throughout the book of Romans, you're going to see the creation account. Paul, on Mars Hill, used creation as the foundation for presenting the gospel. Wow! He went back, in other words, to get to the gospel, he started with creation. The need for the gospel. And then the opening words of the gospel of John are, in the beginning, which is a reference to creation. The New Testament author saw Genesis as critical to understanding Scripture. Now let's go to our last reason, number eight. Biblical creation is under attack by the world. Now, if creation was not very important, why would the world attack it so much? See, they see it as foundational to the rest of the Bible. They see it as foundational to the gospel. The church also needs to see that. Also, a lack of knowledge about biblical creation is a main reason why over 80% of our youth lack confidence in the Bible. Lack of knowledge about biblical creation is a main reason why over 60% of our youth leave the church before finishing school. And lack of knowledge about creation is detrimental to evangelism. See, some of the most common objections we get when we go out there and preach the gospel deal with creation. And if we can't answer those questions about God's creation, then how are they going to listen to anything else we have to say? So it is detrimental to our evangelism if we don't understand the reason why Jesus had to go to the cross and shed his blood. Then we also have people making this statement. Oh, Mike, Mike, don't get into all this. Creation is not a salvation issue. Let's just talk about the primary things. Let's just talk about Jesus and not worry about these secondary issues. My response to that is this. Creation is not directly a salvation issue, but it is a gospel issue, and it's very important for understanding many of our biblical doctrines. This whole idea of creation is now a salvation issue, what, it really, what they're really saying is this. We're not well studied on this, so I don't want to talk about it. It's just another excuse for not studying God's Word. Now, our conclusion on this issue. Creation is not a very important doctrine. It comes from God Questions Ministries, and they put this very clearly here, folks, when they make this statement. There is so much foundational material in these chapters for the rest of the Bible. For example, creation, the fall, sin, the certainty of judgment, the necessity of a Savior, and the introduction of the gospel. To ignore these foundational doctrines would render the rest of the Bible as unintelligible and irrelevant. So we have there, we've answered that challenge. Is it an important doctrine? Yes, it is. And it needs to be taught in our churches, and it needs to be taught accurately as God gave it to us, not how the world wants us to teach creation. Now let's go to our second challenge. How could the first three days of creation be little days if the sun was not created until day four? Now I hear a lot of what I call 
counterfeit responses to that challenge. For example, some Bible students are taught the sun was begun on the first day, but not completed until the fourth day. In other words, creation was a very long process. Now, the problem with this answer is this. There's not one shred of biblical evidence to support that statement. It's just something people wanted to add into God's Word so they'd have an excuse for believing in millions of years. Then here's from the Schofield Reference Bible all the way back in 1909. And it stated, The sun and the moon were created in the beginning. The light, of course, came from the sun, but the vapor diffused the light. Later the sun appeared in an unclouded sky. Now here's the problem with that statement. There's not one shred of biblical evidence to support that claim. Again, it's just another excuse for people wanting to add in millions of years into the Bible. In other words, it's another way of adding something to God's Word that is simply not there. Now, let's talk about this light. How could the first three days be literal days if the sun was not created until day four? Well, the sun is not our only source of light. There's many other sources of light. For example... There's radio waves, there are microwaves, infrared waves, visible light rays such as we get from the sun and light bulbs, ultraviolet waves, x-rays, gamma rays. So there's many forms of light out there. So right there we're saying we don't need the sun for light. But now let's turn to some definitions. Again, we're talking about how could the first three days be literal days if the sun was not there until day four? Well, let's get the definition of a year. What is the definition of a year? Where do we get our 365 and a quarter days from? Well, it's an astronomical event. It's the time it takes the Earth to go around the sun. Again, that's an astronomical event. That's where we get our year from. Now, what's the definition of a month? Where do we get this month from? Well, again, that's another astronomical event. It's the time it takes the moon to go around the Earth once. Now, let's get to the critical one. What is the definition of a day? Where do we get our 24 hours from? Well, that is also an astronomical event. It's the time it takes the Earth to rotate round once on its axis. You know what that means? For the definition of a day, we do not need the sun. So the first three days can be literal days without the sun. Now let's talk about this thing called light. In Genesis chapter 1 Verses 3 through 5, we read this. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. In other words, on day one, God created light. And he said, We have a light and a dark cycle. So what he's saying there is, we have a day right there, because he defined it as a day, and he defined evening and morning as a day. Now, what was that light? Because the sun's not there yet. Well, let's do a little lesson in Hebrew here. On day one, God created light. God called the light, or the Hebrew word for light there is or, O-W-R. Now, what does that Hebrew word mean? It means illumination. It means light but it talks nothing about a light source. There's no object there. God just created light. Now, wait a minute, Mike. Can he do that? Absolutely. He is God. You are not. And he can do things you can't do. He can create light. If he can create everything out of nothing by just speaking it into existence, 
He can also create light. Let's stop questioning God. Now on day four, we read, God said, let there be lights in the firmament. Now notice this. The word for lights there is a different word. It's not or, it's ma'or. Now what does that Hebrew word mean? It means luminous body or luminary. It means there's an object out there now giving off the light. So on day one, God creates light. We have a day and night cycle. But on day four, he creates the sun, moon, and stars. So now we have an object out there. Now, that brings up a whole other question. If there was already a day-night cycle before the sun, why did God make the sun and the stars? Well, he answers that question in Genesis 1.14, where we read, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons for days and years. Right there is our answer. If we already had light and dark cycle in the first three days, why didn't he have to create the sun, moon, and stars? There's your answer. For us, for signs, seasons, years, so we would have a way to tell time. Don't we have a wonderful God out there who does all of this just for us when he didn't need to do anything? So our conclusion on this challenge, how could the first three days be literal days if the sun was not created until day four, is... First of all, we don't need the sun for the definition of a day. There are many forms of light. God created light in Genesis chapter 1, and God is light. Now, let's go to our third and final challenge for this lesson. Should we use modern science to interpret Scripture? We have all this great modern science today. We have astronomy, physics, biology, geology, anthropology, chemistry, and many other forms and types of science out there. Should we use it as our main interpretation of God's Word? Well, what happens if we use scientific evidence to interpret Scripture? Well, several issues could come up here. First, God did not write the Bible to be understood by only a small percentage of elite experts. In other words, He didn't write it so you had to have a Ph.D. in science to understand His Word. He wrote it so everybody can understand it. Now, we might need a little help sometimes from the Holy Spirit. We might need some help from learned people. But we do not need modern science to understand God's Word. Now, if we do use modern science to interpret Scripture, I'm going to go through four points here, four critical points. And point one is, if we use modern science to interpret Scripture, that means for 1,800 years, for at least 1,800 years, Nobody could fully understand what God meant in the first three chapters of Genesis. Why? Because you don't have a science degree. It wasn't until this modern age that we had this modern science that we can finally understand God's Word. That's what it's saying, folks. That's a rather arrogant statement to make. Because what that means is all our prophets and apostles and all those great theologians before us who didn't have the benefit of our modern science really couldn't understand Genesis. That's a terrible statement to make, folks. Point two, if we use modern science to interpret Scripture, we will come to an illogical conclusion. Why is that? Because 50 years from now, we're going to have new modern science. That means we might have to reinterpret Scripture. 50 years after that, we're going to have new modern science. We might have to reinterpret Scripture. So every 50 years or so, we're going to have to keep reinterpreting Scripture. How will we ever know when we get it right? We may never have it right, folks, because every time science changes, we're going to have to change God's Word. That's not a good idea. Point three, I call it new revealed 
knowledge. Let's go to this. Joseph Smith, Mormonism, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Ellen White, Seventh-day Adventist, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Church of Christ, scientist, Mary Baker Eddy, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Jehovah Witnesses, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Scientology, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Islam, Muhammad, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Scientific age, new revealed knowledge, new way to interpret scripture. Do you see where this is going, going folks? This whole idea of new revealed knowledge, we're reinterpreting scripture, that is exactly what is happening today when people take our modern scientific age, the new knowledge we have, and start reinterpreting scripture. New revealed knowledge, folks. We do not have new revealed knowledge. God's word is complete. And then point four is the resurrection. We read this. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now I have a couple of questions for you about the resurrection. If we're using modern science to interpret God's word, Here's the questions I have for you. Do you believe that Jesus Christ really died on that cross? And the people in the church will say, yes, we believe that, Mike. But do you believe he really rose again on the third day? And the people in the church say, yes, yes, we believe that. Now, the question I have to ask is, why do you believe that? You weren't there to witness it. Why do you believe it? And the people in the church say, oh, Mike, it's in the Bible. We believe it by faith. Well, let me make this a little harder for you then. Did you know, according to all known science, you cannot be dead for three days and come back to life? So are you willing to still believe the resurrection even though it goes against known science? And people in the church say, yes, yes, yes. And the, right there is where we have the contradiction in the church. They will believe the resurrection even though it goes against known science, but they will not believe God's account in creation when he says he created everything in six days because it is simply not scientific. And the world sees this contradiction and they're saying, why should I believe you when you don't even believe your own Bible? We need to be consistent with what we believe in the church, folks. God's word says six days. It doesn't matter what the rest of the world thinks. It matters what does God have to say in his word. And he said six literal days about 6,000 years ago. If you can't believe the creation account, then why in the world do you believe the resurrection if science is your starting point? Now, bring this to a conclusion. Justin Rogers, Ph.D. in Hebrew language makes this statement. Many Christians working in the field of scientific cosmology seek to poach godless theories from modern science and work them into a model of biblical faith rather than using divine inspiration to inform science. They prefer to impose modern scientific insight onto the Bible, an insight, it should be observed, the original readers of the Bible would not have understood. All right, now we're ready for our lesson review. What have we covered in this lesson so far? Creation is a secondary doctrine. How could the first three days of creation be literal, literal days that the sun was not created till day four? And should we use modern science to interpret scripture? So let's go to our review exam. Our question number one. 
state three reasons why creation is a primary doctrine. Now, we had more than three reasons, so see if you can get three out of these. First, creation is God's first miracle. Second, creation is the foundation for the gospel. Third, creation determines our view of the character of God and who he is. Fourth, the creation account establishes the doctrine of marriage. Five, the creation account establishes the foundation for understanding many other doctrines and biblical truths. Six, the creation account answers the question how evil was introduced into God's perfect creation. Seven, the first three chapters of Genesis lay the foundation for the rest of the Bible. And eight, biblical creation is under attack by the world. So there were eight reasons we gave, and you needed three of them. Now, question number two, respond to the statement, creation is not a salvation issue. Here's your response. Biblical creation is not directly a salvation issue, but it is a gospel issue. It is also the foundation for understanding many biblical doctrines. Question number three, state how the first three days of creation could be literal days without the sun. And our answer is, the definition of a day is the rotation of the earth once on its axis. Therefore, the sun is not necessary for defining a day. In addition, God created light on day one for the original light and dark cycle. And question number four. State two reasons why using modern science to interpret scripture can lead to false biblical teaching. And we had four reasons. We're just going to, you only need to know two. Number one. It would mean that for about 1,800 years, no one could know the truth. Second, it would create an illogical conclusion. Third, the problem of new revealed knowledge. And fourth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ would be called into question. Now, that concludes lesson two of responding to biblical arguments used to support millions of years. Lesson three, we're going to answer the challenge of the gap theory.